Hey everyone, welcome back to Tier and Apologetics. I'm so pumped to join us today to have Dr. Justin Mooney. He's a KLM Memorial Postdoctoral Fellow in the Philosophy Department at the University of Alberta. Um, he's a PhD in philosophy, and today we're going to be talking about the problem of evil, and specifically non-consequentialist arguments from evil. So Justin, thank you so much for joining me. How you been doing? Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I like this topic. Yeah, I, I've noticed, like we talked about a couple of years ago now, how to solve the problem of evil. Um, just to start off, Justin, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, and what kind of got you interested in topics like the problem of evil? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So um, like you said, I'm a postdoctoral fellow right now at University of Alberta. So I'm basically just being paid to do my own research at this point. But um, I've always had an interest in philosophy of religion, among other things in philosophy, partly because of my, well, actually, most, almost entirely because of my religious background. Um, and the, the problem of evil is, like, historically the most influential argument against the existence of God. And uh, so that has always, or that is very interesting to me. And um, so I've done a bunch of work on that. I've published, I think, four or five, maybe just four papers on that. Uh, and they all kind of focused on non-consequentialist aspects of the problem, which is something we'll talk about. Yeah, Justin, so what is like the non-consequentialist, oh, a coin just dropped right behind me, um, the non-consequentialist challenge like that we're looking at to the project of theodicy? Cool, yeah. So um, the non-consequentialist challenge, or the, I mean, you could just call it the non-consequentialist problem of evil is is like one aspect of the big thing that we call the problem of evil. Uh, and the big thing, the problem of evil, is just the problem of explaining why it is that God permits the evil and suffering that is present in the world. Um, but so what, what is this one facet of it then, this non-consequentialist facet? Uh, well, so I think a good way to get at it, uh, and you kind of suggested this um, in your... Uh, uh, email was um, a good way to look at it is to to begin with some particularly horrendous evils and consult our intuitions about them. So I want to read a paragraph uh, from Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Um, there's a section in that novel titled Rebellion, where one of the characters, Ivan, uh, who is talking about the problem of evil, and he he runs through like a series of really nasty cases of child abuse and child torture, and it's it's a it's known as being a really powerful presentation of the problem of evil. So I want to read one of those cases that he describes. So it's a paragraph from this novel, and then I want to think about like what kind of intuitions we have about it. So here it is: uh, there was a little girl of five who was hated by her father and mother most worthy and respectable people of good education and breeding. This poor child of five was subjected to every possible torture by those cultivated parents. They beat her, thrashed her, kicked her for no reason till her body was one bruise. Then they went to greater refinements of cruelty, shut her up in the cold and frost all night in a privy. And because she didn't ask to be taken up at night, as though a child of five sleeping its angelic sound sleep could be trained to wake and ask, they smeared her face and filled her mouth with excrement. And it was her mother. Her mother did this. And that mother could sleep hearing the poor child's groans. Can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what's done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in the dark and the cold and weep her meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? Okay, so that's a very poignant and, and awful uh, case of evil and suffering. And we have a lot of strong emotional and intuitive reactions to it. And I think that all of those reactions are epistemically significant. Uh, but what I want to do is focus in on intuitions about one aspect of this case of evil and suffering, and that is its impermissibility. So I have the intuition and I take it that most of us have the intuition, I hope most of us have the intuition, that this is wrong, that this is impermissible. And in two ways, what the parents do to this girl is impermissible. But also, it would be impermissible for like a, a, an ordinary bystander to let the parents do this to the girl, um, to allow that sort of thing. 
But more than that, I also have this intuition about the case. I think not only is it impermissible, but it would be impermissible even if somehow or other this torturing this girl was going to lead to a greater good in the future. Like if, for example, somehow this was going to result in some really dramatic case of post-traumatic growth later in this girl's life that was like highly valuable or something like that. I think even then it is not permissible to torture her or to allow her to be tortured. Um, and so that intuition about this case, and maybe you share that intuition, maybe you don't, but if you do, that suggests that there's what's called a side constraint at work here. Um, so what's a side constraint? Well, it has something to do with the debate in ethics between consequentialist ethical theories and non-consequentialist ethical theories. So I'm going to be very rough and about this, but roughly consequentialist ethical theories say that when it comes to determining right and wrong, all that matters is consequences. And non-consequentialist ethical theories say that when it comes to determining right and wrong, consequences are not all that matters. There are other things that matter too. And in particular, there are some actions that you just can't do even if they would have good consequences, even if they would lead to an outweighing good or a greater good. Um, so a side constraint is a moral rule or a moral restriction like that. It's a, it's a moral uh, rule that says you can't do this thing even though it would lead to a greater good. Uh, and so I want to say that with, when it comes to horrendous evils, like this case from Dostoevsky, this poor girl, those are like, there is a side constraint against uh, either doing or allowing this evil. Uh, you can't do it or allow it, even if it leads to a greater good. Okay, what does this have to do with God and theodicy and all that? Well, okay, so a theodicy is a hypothesis about why God permits the evil and suffering in the world. And most theodicies, not all of them, but most of them have this like greater good structure. They can be classified as greater good theodicies, which means that they have something approximating the following structure. Um, they say something like, look, there's, or they try to identify like one or more good things, which uh, God could bring about only by permitting horrendous evil and suffering and which are good enough to outweigh that evil and suffering, to be worth the cost of that evil and suffering. And then the suggestion is, well, it's because of those good things. It's, it's to get those things that God is permitting the evil and suffering in the world, right? Um, so uh, roughly something along those lines is how a lot of theodicies are structured. So for example, take the free will theodicy. The free will theodicy is, is, is like this. It says that free will or some other good thing which entails free will uh, is uh, something that God can only have in the world by permitting or at least risking evil and suffering. But also, according to the defenders of this view, it's good enough to be worth the cost of that suffering. Or take the soul-building theodicy, another popular one. This one says, look, there's this good thing, character building or, or the development and, and manifestation of virtue. This is a really good thing. And God can only have that by permitting evil and suffering, they say. And then they also say, it's good enough to be worth the cost of that evil and suffering, right? So a lot of theodicies have this structure. But then the problem is, well, what happens when we consider that there might be robust side constraints, these moral, uh, on per doing and allowing evil, these moral rules that say, no, no, you cannot do and allow at least certain evils, even when they lead to a greater good. That's the problem that I am focusing on in this paper that we're basing this interview on. How do we explain, like, how does God get around these side constraints, so to speak? Um, it, you know, we can't just say, oh, yeah, well, there's a greater good. That's why God's permitting this evil. Uh, if there are rules, moral rules sometimes that say, no, 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 you can't do that even for a greater good. Okay, did that sort of make sense? I went on for a bit there. Yeah, no, I think that's really helpful, Justin. So when we're looking at, like, the challenge here, um, what we're trying to say is like uh, the, for the, the theist, you can't just say, well, oh, well, even like just off the bat, like, oh, even the most horrendous evils. Um, well, surely if there's a greater good, then like it's permissible to allow it, as we as you brought about with like the Dostoevsky 
quote. Um, and you're talking about these like side constraints, um, because these are things that are pointing out like, Hey, like, look at like this case of like, say, um, of this horrible thing that could happen to this girl, um, or maybe perhaps even other things that would be like challenges to say like, well, the project of theodicy, um, it can't get going. Cause even if there is a greater good, well, because of X, Y, and Z, um, this is just impermissible. Even if there is this greater good that comes about from it. Yeah. Yeah. So, or you could put it this way, um, instead of saying it can't even, the, you know, the project of theodicy can't even get off the ground, I like to think of it as it's an additional hurdle for that project that it has to somehow jump, right? So not only do we have to, well, if you take the greater good approach, not only do you have to find a suitable greater good, which is hard enough, but you also have to circumnavigate these side constraints if there are such things. So maybe then let's take a look at some of these side constraints. And these are things that you mentioned in this paper that uh, kind of inspired this interview. Uh, what is like this idea of creation? Um, I mean, look, like when I take it, like you think about God, like God creates the universe um, and creating the universe. There is this like horrendous suffering that comes about from God, like quote unquote, creating the creative button, even though obviously that's not exactly how that all went down. Um, so mm -hmm. Like, is it like, what's the side constraint here when we're looking at the, like the idea of creation? Yeah. Okay. So, um, borrowing a, a distinction from Philippa foot, uh, between positive and negative duties, I like to distinguish between positive and negative side constraints on permitting evil. And so negative side constraints are on, uh, permitting evil are constraints on doing evil. They say you cannot do such and such evil thing, even though it leads to an outweighing good. And then positive side constraints are constraints on allowing evil. They say, you cannot let this evil happen, even if it would lead to an outweighing good. You can't allow it to happen. You have to like take some action and intervene. So it's like positive in the sense that it's calling you to do something rather than telling you not to do something. Um, yeah, and so I think that we have to think about both of those kinds of constraints when we're thinking about God uh, and God's relationship to the world. And then we also have to think about, as you mentioned, uh, both like this distinction between God creating the world and then God conserving the world over time. Uh, and we have to ask, can God create a world like this without violating any of those side constraints, positive or negative? And then alternative, or in addition, can God conserve the world over time, keep it going without violating any of those constraints? So it sounds like you want to talk about creation first. Is that right? Yeah, let's start with that. Perfect. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I have this case in the paper, this uh, thought experiment that I use to try to show that, in fact, God can create our world without violating any side constraints, either positive or negative. Uh, no side constraints on doing and allowing evil. So I want to share that thought experiment with you um, real quick here. Let me pull it up. Um, so I'm just going to, again, just going to read a, a quick paragraph here. So suppose you possess a creation button. Pressing the button will cause a big bang that unfolds over time into a universe much like ours, where organisms and ultimately creatures like us eventually evolve on some suitable planet where they experience approximately the same kinds, amounts, and distributions of good and evil that we do on Earth. So causally downstream of pressing the button, there will be earthquakes, diseases, and predation, but also stars, coral reefs, rainforests, and communities of people. There will be many wars, kidnappings, and murders, but also a lot of love, virtue, and music. Okay, so I call that the creation button case. And here's the question that I ask about it, and that I think, you know, it's good to think about, right? Is it permissible to press the creation button? Is it like okay to do that, morally speaking? And I'll tell you just my own intuition is yes, that would be an okay thing to do to press the creation button. And if you don't immediately have that intuition, you can try modifying it in certain ways. Like suppose that um, every creature that comes to exist in the universe ends up going to heaven eventually. Uh, and it may be, if you don't initially think it's okay to press the creation button, maybe you'll think it is in that version of the case, right? But anyway, the general thought here is, all right, it seems like it's okay to press the creation button. But that's a little bit surprising because all of the evils and all the evil and suffering in the world happens as a result of pressing that button because everything from the big bang onward that ever happens 
is a result of pressing that button. And so you might think, well, look, if there are these side constraints on doing and allowing evil, wouldn't you be violating them by pressing the button, right? Like say, you know, there are children who get tortured in this world eventually, then aren't you violating side constraints against torturing children by pressing the button? And yet it still seems, I say, it seems to me permissible to press it. So what's going on here? All right, so there's more than one thing that one could say about what's going on here. Um, but I'm gonna tell you what I think is happening. So there's a really interesting distinction that some philosophers have talked about uh, between, I'll use the example of killing, between killing and causing someone to die. Uh, or, and even, even if we restrict like causing to die to be only the kinds of cases that we don't think of as merely allowing, which some people take to be a kind of causing, right? So causing to die in a not merely allowing way, right? There's a difference between these two things, it, it, some philosophers say, and here's an example of where that difference shows up. Suppose I introduce a couple of friends to each other, a couple of my friends. I say, hey, I want you to meet this other person. They meet each other, they get married, they have kids, their kids grow up, their kids live long and happy lives, and then their kids die. All right, so I'm technically a cause of the death of their kids because I caused the parents to meet, right? If, if I hadn't done that, they wouldn't have met, they wouldn't have had those kids, the kids wouldn't have grown, ever lived, grown up, would never have aged, would never have died, right? So in some sense, I am the cause of these kids' death or one of the causes of it, right? But no one would say that I killed those kids. That would be very strange. So it looks like there are cases where you can cause death without killing. Here's another example from David Lewis that's getting closer to the creation button case. David Lewis says, hey, look, take the, the Big Bang. The Big Bang is a cause of everything. Pick anything that ever happens and start asking what caused that, what caused that, what caused that, and eventually you get back to the Big Bang. So every death was caused by the Big Bang. But the Big Bang, says Lewis, didn't kill anybody. And that seems right. I mean, intuitively, Big Bang didn't kill anybody. So there does seem to be a difference between killing and causing to die. And similarly for other things, uh, I think you can do, you could, well, not, not just I think, but philosophers have noted, you can kind of do the same thing with, with other kinds of actions. Like um, there's a difference between abusing and causing to be abused. Uh, torturing, causing to be tortured. Pick any kind of evil doing action you want and you can draw the same distinction. Actually, it doesn't even have to be an evil doing action, but I'm focusing on those because we're talking about the problem of evil, right? All right, so what I want to say is I think what's going on when you press the creation button is that the way in which pressing the button is related to all of the evils and, and suffering that happens in the resulting universe is, is indirect in such a way that it doesn't count as killing, torturing, and abusing. It's only causing death, causing abuse, causing torturing, rather than killing, torturing, and abusing. Now, I don't have a, an analysis of like, okay, what exactly is the difference between killing and merely causing to die? Uh, if some people have tried to sort of analyze that distinction, it's really hard to do. Um, I don't think anyone has yet done it successfully, including me, so I'm not going to try to offer one. I'm just going to rely on our intuitions about cases here. But it seems to me that that's plausible, uh, a plausible story about what's happening with the creation button. Um, you are not killing, torturing, and abusing by pressing the creation button because you're merely causing the, you know, ca like merely causing deaths, merely causing uh, cases of torture and abuse, as well as all the other and, and often good things that are caused by pressing the button, right? And so here's a way then to explain why pressing the creation button doesn't violate any side constraints. Side constraints, you might think, both positive and negative, you could say, are only constraints on those uh, kinds of actions like killing, torturing, and abusing, not on merely causing to die, merely causing, you know, whatever, right? Then there would be no side constraints that are even relevant when you're pressing the creation button, so you wouldn't be violating any of them. Okay, did that make any sense? Yeah, I think that was actually really helpful, Justin. Uh, I keep going back to like thinking about the Dostoevsky case that you brought up at the beginning yeah. of this conversation. And if we think about that case and thinking yeah. like, 
um, is it right to like do this in light of there being like some greater good? The obvious answer is just like, no, like that is morally wrong. Like you cannot um, go with like torture somebody because there's going to be some greater good that comes about it. Um, yeah. But I think that, like what you're saying here is that when we get into the account of creation, like there is a relevant difference here between the creation account and like the Dostoevsky quote that you brought up. And that account is that like when we're looking at like God creating the universe, it's not that God is like directly causing all then these like horrifically like acts of suffering. Is that right? And it's more of like an indirect way of how all these like horrific things are coming about. Yeah. So that's roughly right. Um, it, it does seem to have something to do with directness or indirectness, this difference between killing and merely causing to die. But again, I don't think anyone has succeeded in, in analyzing exactly what the relevant difference is. Uh, it's not just that it's indirect, because you can indirectly kill people. Um, and there has to be more to it than that. But that does seem to be sort of part of it. Uh, and, and yes, so there's something about the way in which pressing the creation button is only very like circuitously connected to the evils that happen. That makes it different than just straight up killing or torturing like the parents are doing to the child. So how could like like I think someone might try to push back here and say like, OK, so we're all agreeing that like this Dostoevsky situation like that is morally wrong. Like that's not right. Yeah. Um, but we think about like God um, and God either choosing to create the universe or God choosing not to create the universe. Um, and it seems like, like I could say that or someone could say that like if God chooses not to create the universe. Well, then like a situation like the Dostoevsky situation is averted, like it's not going to happen. Um, whereas if God creates the universe, then this situation, say, uh, occurs in like divine foreknowledge or something along those lines. And then could someone say then that like God's still creating part of my voice, I apologize, um, the situation like itself. And like it, could someone like then argue that that might be morally wrong to create like the possibility yeah. of even allowing like this, hor this horrific act of suffering? Yeah, sure. Um, it's, uh, yeah, you could say, look, well, God, at least when God creates, God's going to foreknow that this Dostoevsky case is going to happen, right? Um, and so God could avoid that. Uh, and so here's the way I'm thinking about it. Um, God, there, uh, there are still non-consequentialist, or uh, sorry, there are still consequentialist constraints that are going to be relevant when God is creating the universe, rather than like side constraints. So I've suggested maybe side constraints just aren't even relevant in that case. But there are going to be constraints still like, well, look, you can't just create a world that has evil in it, like the Dostoevsky case, when you could have created a better world that didn't have that and was in no way worse off. Um, but that would be a consequentialist constraint. And so ultimately, I think the, the um, theodicist has to say, OK, well, there's got to be some story to tell about how God is satisfying consequentialist constraints here. And so that's presumably going to involve, well, sorry, it doesn't have to. But one common way of doing it is to say, oh, it involves some kind of greater good. Like there's some kind of greater good attached to a world where some of uh, cases like this happen sometimes, like the Dostoevsky case. Um, and that's why God goes for a world like that rather than another. So I'm definitely not here giving you a whole theory about like, well, what is, you know, the full explanation for why God permits um, horrendous evil like that. I'm just trying to show that side constraints on those kinds of evils are not going to block God from being able to create the world. Did that make sense? Yeah, that did make sense. Uh, that's helpful, Justin. Uh, what about like the idea of conversation? or a uh, guy conserving the world um does like guy conserving the world mean that like he's responsible for the evil that's existing yeah. at this moment good yeah so this is tougher i think than creation so with creation you can do all this stuff about like you know pressing the creation button it seems like you're not really killing even though it results in death and so on but when you talk about god conserving the world right the traditional idea here is something like god is at every moment keeping the universe in existence and can keeping it running in the normal way, like according to the laws of nature. And so suppose this Dostoevsky case comes along. These parents start torturing this girl. Meanwhile, what's God doing? God is not only not stopping them, but is actually like keeping, th keeping the whole thing going in a sense. God is keeping the universe running through this whole process, enabling all of, the, you know, every, the, the parents retain their ordinary causal powers to 
abuse and so on and and pain is still caused in the ordinary way you know god is just is is sort of like maintaining the whole thing so you might think what's going on here if there are side constraints on um uh causing uh suffering or, or sorry i'm doing and allowing evil like this like this horrendous case of suffering isn't god violating some of those um or wouldn't god be violating those in that case uh uh, so that's that's kind of like the, that's the problem. D did the problem make sense? Yeah, I think yeah, totally. Cool. All right. So let me. So I want to take this one in two parts. I want to talk about um, negative side constraints and positive side constraints separately, if that's okay. Um, okay. So negative side constraints on uh, uh, are uh, on uh, permitting evil have to do with. Um, uh, sorry. They have to do with uh, doing evil as opposed to allowing evil. So these are moral rules that say you cannot torture children, even if it would lead to a greater good. So the question of is God violating any of like a constraint like that by sustaining the universe comes down to this. Is God doing something like torturing? Does God count as torturing this, this child or is doing something kind of like torturing the child where it's like an evil doing sort of action? Um I want to say no. And again, I have a thought experiment to try to pump this intuition. Um, so let me pull that up really quick. Uh, let's see. Uh, okay. So this is a variation of the creation button case. Suppose that after pressing the creation button, you must then hold down a conservation button in order to sustain the operation of the laws of nature in the resulting universe. As long as you hold down this button, events will continue to have their normal causal consequences. But if you let up on it, the universe will come to an abrupt end. Given are uh, gifted with an unusually long life, you hold the button down for billions of years as the universe develops, life evolves, and human history unfolds. Eventually, the Dostoevsky case occurs. You have an opportunity to intervene to save the girl from her abusive parents because you're standing nearby and you can intervene without letting up on the conservation button because intervening is compatible with the past and the laws of nature. Okay, so I call that the conservation button case for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, I'll tell you two intuitions I have about this case. Maybe you'll share them, maybe you won't. One intuition I have about this case is that you should intervene and save the girl. You ought to do that. You have a moral duty to intervene. Um, however, I also have this intuition. If you don't intervene, if you uh, you know fail to act on that duty and allow this girl to be tortured by her parents, you are not doing evil. You are merely allowing evil. That's an intuition I have about this case. I don't think that you count as torturing the girl just because you're holding down this button that keeps the universe running and then just kind of sitting aside and letting the parents, right? I mean, you, you're doing something really bad. But it's not doing evil, it's allowing evil, it seems to me. That's just an intuition I have. Now, is there a way to make sense of that intuition? Is there a way to kind of vindicate it? I think so. And the way I do it in the paper is sort of complicated, and I don't want to get into all the weeds, but it has to do with a particular theory about doing and allowing and what the difference is between them. But here's the main upshot of that part of the paper. I ultimately end up saying that if, you, if your way of contributing to some event is only by sustaining the laws of nature, um, or at least roughly, if it's only by sustaining the laws of nature, uh, then you don't count as doing that thing. Um, and that's because the, the continuing operation of the laws of nature is what Fiona Willard in her work on doing and allowing would call a, uh, or, well, what she calls a mere condition. I don't know if she agrees with me that laws of nature count as a mere condition, but I'm saying that. Um, so they're a mere condition on like the suffering of this child uh, or what other people might call a background condition on the suffering of this child. And my thought is, um, again, building on some similar things in Fiona Willard, that if the only way that you're contributing to this child suffering is by way of maintaining a background condition for it, then you don't count as doing it. You're not torturing. You're not really doing anything like torturing. You're just allowing torture, which is also bad, but not doing. It's allowing. Okay. Did that make sense? So 
are you saying then like I, I think I'm tracking, but I'm also confused. Is it when we're looking at like this idea of like these negative constraints and like making sense of it, what you're trying to say that like we're thinking about like God conserving the world, um, and like like him being like the source of like us like existing now. Um what you're thinking, Justin, and please correct me where I where I fall short here, but like it's not that God is like when he's conserving the world, he's not directly like causing um all these like horrific like events of suffering, but it's more of a like allowance where like he sees it, but he's just like not actually like directly like making the people or whatever or the natural evils or whatever actually like occur. Yep. I that's I think a fair way to characterize it. Yeah. So God is the way in which God sustains the universe on on my view, which is basically just by keeping the laws of nature operating. Uh I want to say that counts uh, only as allowing all the things that are like the particular things that are happening, like when these parents torture their rather than doing those things. God is not uh, like, you know, torturing the child or like making the parents torture the child or anything like that. Right. God is merely sustaining the background conditions against which all of these particular actions are happening. And that doesn't count as doing those actions or doing actions of that sort. Uh, did that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, what then maybe if you like, what are like the positive like constraints then? If we're yeah. looking at like, like, it seems like to me, like I'm thinking about this right now. I'm like, okay, so like if we're going to say that like, well, like if we can't like generate these negative constraints um, with this kind of response, part of me is wondering like, could someone kind of use like what you're saying and like, try to strip away all the positive constraints that you're going to try to bring forth. Like, uh, yeah. What are your thoughts here, Justin? Well, okay. Yeah. So I think the problem here is, all right. So what I've done is I've said, Oh, look, if God is just sustaining the laws of nature, that doesn't count as like torturing children. It just counts as like allowing children to be tortured. Right. But it's still bad to allow children to be tortured. And I have even said already, right. That like, I think there's a side constraint against that. You should not allow those parents to torture their kid even if it would lead to a greater good. So we have this problem, and this is the toughest case, by the way, of all the side constraints, these positive side constraints that come into effect while God is sustaining the world after creation, right? Doesn't God have like a duty to intervene in the world and stop these parents from, from saving their child, uh, or sorry, from torturing their child? Um, uh, and by the way, when I talk about, so I'm talking about God having moral duties and things like that. Some people don't like to think about God that way. They don't think that um, God has duties. Uh, but actually, you could sort of rephrase everything I'm saying uh, without that. You could talk, as some people do, about the way that uh, a morally perfect being would naturally act. And it would be, uh, so Eric Reeton and William Lane Craig, I think, have talked about that, have, have the way I put it just now, I think, is how Reeton puts it. But they've talked about, um, you could think about, like, well, moral rules might tell you how God would act, even if they aren't, like, rules that God is subject to in some sense. Uh, but for convenience, I'm going to keep talking in terms of as if God has actual duties and so forth. Um, okay, did that make sense before I keep going? I think so, yeah. Okay, cool. So it was just like a, a caveat. But all right, so what do we say then about this? It seems like you shouldn't allow the parents to torture the child, even if it leads to a greater good. Well, if that's true for me, then is it, isn't it also true for God? God shouldn't allow the parents to do this, even if uh, it leads to a greater good? Okay, so I want to say, actually, no. It's true for me, but that doesn't mean that it's true for God. And here's the way that I do this. So I do it by drawing on an idea uh, from Fiona Willard having to do with um, the, the moral duties that we ordinary humans have to alleviate suffering. Uh, so I'm going to have to take a, a quick detour here um, into applied ethics. Uh, so in applied ethics, there's this debate about how demanding morality is when it comes to our duties to help other people who are suffering. There's uh, one view, or rather like cluster of views, that says that our duties in this respect are very demanding to the point where we should give all of our excess income to charities that have proved themselves effective at alleviating suffering. 
And so on this sort of view, like it would be wrong to ever go see a movie because the money you spent to see that movie could have been given to a charity that would help alleviate some suffering in the world. And you should have done that instead. All right, so on this view, morality is extremely demanding. It's basically requiring that we human beings do everything we possibly can uh, to limit suffering in the world. Okay, on the other side, there's a view or maybe a family of views uh, that says something like this, that no, actually morality isn't that demanding. It would be good, perhaps, to, um, well, I mean, I don't know if, if uh, everyone who holds this view is going to say that this would be good, but I, it se certainly seems good to me, and maybe they would all say that. It would be good, uh, you know, to give, like, all of your excess income to effective charities. Um, uh, and uh, maybe there's a, a moral requirement that you give at least some of your income to charity, but there's no requirement that you give all of the all of your excess income to charity, right? The, the morality is not that demanding when it comes to alleviating suffering around the world. All right, so this is a debate that philosophers have been fighting over for a long time. I'm not going to try to resolve it here. I'm just going to say I lean towards the the less demanding side on this controversy. I think morality is not as demanding as some people say that it is when it comes to, you know, how much we need to give and help other, you know, alleviate suffering and so on, right? Okay. So Fiona Woolard has a really cool theory about why morality is not as, as demanding, uh, why it's, it's less demanding, right? And her theory goes like this. She says, well, look, we human beings are intimately related to our bodies. Our bodies are like the locus of our agency in the world. Anything you do, any project you pursue, you do ultimately by way of doing something with your body, right? That's how you interact with the world is through your body, all right? And then Willard says, look, if morality were super demanding, the way some people say that it is, then um, it wouldn't leave us any moral freedom or autonomy with respect to our bodies. We wouldn't be able to do even within limits, like what we want with our bodies. We wouldn't be able to pursue our own projects. We would be constantly at the demand or mercy of public need. Uh, and that, Willard thinks, would damage our conception of ourselves as separate individuals in a world with other separate individuals. And so Willard says, look, morality limits the demands that it places on us in this way as a kind of respect in light of our intimate relationship with our bodies. It's like treating us like separate individuals as we are in fact separate individuals. Okay, now um, conversation with a friend I had about this convinced me that, well, all right, this talk of morality like respecting us can't be literally true. And so you might wonder, well, what's the literal truth lurking underneath this respect talk? And I don't know what Willard would say about this. Um, but here's one thought. You might think, well, maybe it's fittingness. Maybe the idea is that it's in light of our intimate relationship to our bodies, our kind of embodied individuality in the world, it's fitting for morality to leave us moral freedom to use our bodies how we want to pursue the projects that we want to pursue, again, within certain limits. Um, and so that's why morality is the way it is. Uh, okay, so that's Woolard's theory. Now, I'm going to take this and try to do something with it, uh, apply it to God. But before I do that, let me pause. Did that make sense? Yeah, um, can you just kind of give me like a, like, I think I'm tracking with you, but can you give me like, maybe like a, like a 10, 15, 20, 30 second summary of kind of like that point right there that you're trying to bring forth, Justin? Yeah, so basically, Woolard holds the view that morality is not super demanding when it comes to aiding uh, you know, giving to charity, aiding people in need. Um, and uh, she says, well, why not? Why would morality not be more demanding? She says, well, because it, morality is basically treating us like separate individuals. And it's doing that by giving us freedom to kind of pursue our own projects, to decide what we want to do with our lives, our bodies, and so forth. Uh, and so that's a little bit metaphorical, but roughly that's the idea. Did that help? Yeah, like that the freedom that we have is like an integral part of like who we are and not in the freedom of the sense of like, oh, you can just do whatever you want and do something like horrendously evil, but in the sense of like, um, it's important that we aren't like 
totally constrained by like, oh, I have to give everything away and whatnot. Yes, yes. Or like everything you do is like required by morality. You have no options left. Mm. Morality dictates your entire life. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I want to try to apply this to God. Now, Willard's story is about limited embodied humans. And so it doesn't directly apply to God, who is not a limited embodied human, barring complications about the incarnation for, for the moment. Um, uh, but there's a sort of analogous story that I think we can tell about God here. And here's, here's how it goes in a nutshell. So God has this really extreme and interesting and radical relation to the rest of the world. God is the creator of the world. But not only that, God is sort of that that uh, the dependence of the world on God is like modally robust, meaning like it, it uh, nothing could have possibly existed apart from God. And moreover, I think that God is like metaphysically at the foundation of a re of reality, so that the non contingent metaphysical structure of the world is actually grounded in God's nature. So God has this really radical and unique position with respect to all of the rest of reality. And I want to say that just like Woolard says that morality kind of limits the demands that it places on us as a way of respecting uh, our like individuality, our embodied individuality. I want to say there's something similar going on with God, it's, it's, but it's that morality limits the demands it places on God with respect to how much and when and where God has to intervene in the world as a way of sort of respecting or acknowledging God's uh, position as like the foundation of all of reality. It's sort of like treating God like the foundation of reality rather than treating God like just another creature in the world. Um, and it does that by, by uh, well, more specifically, I want to say it does this by basically making it permissible for God not to intervene miraculously at all in the world. God can, if God wants to, just keep maintaining the laws of nature without ever doing anything else. Now, if God wants to do something else, like perform a miracle, God can. But morality doesn't require any interventions on God's part, is what I want to suggest. And again, like the talk of like morality respecting God, by you know, that's again, I think, metaphorical. And I also, again, think that the literal truth might have something to do with fittingness. It might be like, look, it's just fitting that God would not be required to intervene in the world, given God's unique position as the creator and, and like metaphysical foundation of everything. Um, okay, uh, so there's a couple things I could say in defense of this suggestion, but before I do that, uh, which I'll try to be quick about, did that make sense? Yeah, so like the idea is like, it took me where I, I go wrong, but like the, that for God, um similar to like where we aren't like always obligated by like the constraints of morality to do something like god like in some way is also like not always conf confined probably isn't the best word to describe it but he always isn't like going to like necessarily do like um like a certain action because maybe it's more moral than another one um is that right that's close yeah so i mean um yeah, you could put it this way. I think this is what you were getting at. Um, so even for us, at least according to some views, even for us, uh, it, we're not always required to prevent suffering that we can prevent. Sometimes we can just do what we want instead, right? Like, I think it's okay to sometimes go see a movie instead of giving all of your money to effective charities. Um, and then the thought is, well, same for God. It's also okay for God not to prevent suffering that God can prevent sometimes. Uh, and actually, I want to say quite radically, like it's kind, of, it's kind of like always okay in a sense for God. Um, so, but the rationale is a little bit different, right? So the reason why morality doesn't demand as much as it does of us is a little bit different than the reason for God. For us, it's that Woolard story about our embodiment. For God, I'm suggesting it has to do with God's being like the creator and foundation of the world. Um, but yeah, so that's the rough idea. And then here's something I can say in defense of it. So it is, it does seem, sound very extreme to say like, oh, look, God doesn't have to intervene in the world at all. So not only are there no positive side constraints that would require God to intervene to save this girl, right? There might be for us. In fact, there are, I think, for us. But not only does God not have any positive side constraints 
uh, that require God to prevent evil in the world. God doesn't have even like ordin like non-side constraints, like consequentialist type constraints that require God to intervene in the world. That's pretty extreme. Why would anyone think that? Does that make any sense? Okay, so there's a couple of things I want to that I think can be said in support of this. First, God's relationship to the world is also very extreme, right? Not just the de facto creator, but like the ultimate metaphysical foundation. All of reality is radically dependent on God. And so if morality is going to limit the demands it places on God as a kind of recognition of God's status, then you might expect those limits to be extreme, just like God's status is extreme. That seems, again, I think, fitting. And then the second thing that could be said in support of this is, um, since my suggestion is that God is permitted to just keep sustaining the laws of nature without ever intervening miraculously, I think that's a natural place to draw a line. If we're going to draw a line somewhere that says morality doesn't you know, demand more than this of God. If we're talking about God being the creator and foundation of the world, it's natural to say, okay, well, what's God permitted to do? To sustain the world in accord with the very laws that God chose for it, that they would, these would be the laws that are supposed, how the universe is supposed to work, at least most of the time. Um, so I think it's actually a, I think it's a kind of plausible proposal, um, though I admit this is uh, dealing with these positive side constraints in the context of God sustaining the world is the, the toughest case um, of all the side constraints uh, that we've looked at. Mm. So the challenge with the positive side constraints, just to make sure, um, well, the distinction here, like we've talked about like negative constraints and like positive um, side constraints here. Um, and it seems like to me, like the negative can you kind of like clarify? Cause I think I'm a little bit can, like, I think I know, but I, I still don't have to like use the right words to describe it. Sure. What's the difference here between like the negative and like the positive constraints here that we've been talking about? Yeah. So it's difference. It's the, basically the difference between doing and allowing, but so, so, uh, Philip foot, it started with Philip foot's positive and negative duties, right? Um, so a positive duty is a duty to do something. And a negative duty is a duty to not do something. So like a positive duty would be like, you have to rescue the drowning child. Like morally, you're required to do that, right? That's a positive duty because it's a duty that requires you to do something. And it's so you have to rescue the child instead of allowing the child to drown. Um, so it has to do with allowing as well, right? Whereas a negative duty is a duty that says you can't do a certain thing. So like you can't drown the child, uh, you know, that would be a wrong thing for you to do. Um, that's a negative duty. It's telling you that there's a thing that you are not permitted to do. Um, does that help? I went to press that and mute and I, I turned my camera off. Um, yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I think that's very helpful. Um, so so just all like I did was take... Sorry. No, go ahead. All I did was take Foote's uh, uh, distinction there between positive and negative duties and say, well, that also applies to side constraints, which is just a special kind of duty, the kind that says you can't do this even if it, there's a greater good involved. Okay, that's helpful. Justin, so we've talked a lot about this. Like, where does this leave, like, the project of theodicy? Um, and talking yeah. about these, like, positive and negative constraints and thinking, like, um, why could God allow evil? Could God allow evil? Things like this. Um, where is the project of theodicy? Like, is it dead? Is it alive? Is it kind of just, like, you know, like, limping around? Um, where are we at with the project <laughs> of theodicy now? Yeah, okay, interesting. So um, I think this whole project of trying to figure out, like, why does God allow the evil and suffering in the world? Or or really more, I mean, I guess most people think of themselves at not necessarily as trying to figure out, like, actually, why does God, what are God's reasons, but more like, well, what might they be, which is, you know, more epistemically humble. Um, uh, but um, I guess, I mean, I think for a long time that theodicies have had trouble because they aren't paying enough attention to the non-consequentialist stuff, like side constraints that we've been looking at here. Uh, I think that if I am right, that God can create and sustain the world without violating any side constraints on doing or allowing evil, um, that helps a lot. Uh, I don't know if I'm right. I mean, 
as it goes in philosophy, you publish something and then everyone disagrees with you. So, you know, um, but uh, uh, if I am, I think this helps a lot because I think this is what's been holding back a lot of theodicy. It's just, we've been kind of not paying enough attention to these side constraints and that makes a lot of theodicies seem, um, there's a phrase that Plant Alvin Plantinga used years ago. He's like a lot of theodicies, he said something like they strike me as uh, shallow, tepid, and ultimately frivolous or something like that. Um, and I think it, a lot of it has to do with this. Like it's, um, it, it's like there's been a very simplified approach, this consequentialist, like all we need to do is find greater good. Uh, Eric Reeton has a good paper about this from like two, the year 2000, like of the way that consequentialism has kind of dominated so much thinking about the problem of evil. Um, and I think that we, we need, in order to make more progress on the problem of evil, to think about non-consequentialist stuff more. And there has been more of that lately. And I think that's really promising. And I think that's where sort of like the, the um, potential success of theodicy, if we're ever going to succeed with this, it lies in somewhere in that direction. That's what I think. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. Uh, feel free to share like any like last thoughts or things you want to say before we wrap up here. And then how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that? Sure. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, maybe I'll just mention. So we, we've based this interview on a paper that I published last year, I think it was. And that paper was published in the journal Philosophical Studies. But you can find you can find it accessible for free, at least the penultimate version. On um, it's on Phil Papers, which is an archive of philosophy work, and it's also on my personal website, which is justinmooney.net. So if you're also if you're interested in looking at any other work I've done, I've written a few things on the the problem of evil and on some other topics in philosophy of religion. Uh, you can find that on my website. Well, Justin, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your insight into the problem of evil. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and there's a lot for me to think about here, um, and you've really stretched my mind, so thank you. And I will leave links down below for people where they can follow and connect with Justin. Uh, and if you'd like it here in Apologetics, I encourage you to leave a like, subscribe, all that fun stuff, uh, and you can support the show at patreon.com slash Apologetics. But, Justin, one last time, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate you and everything you're doing. Uh, thank you. Yep. Great. Thanks so much. It was good to be here. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you have a good one and God bless. We'll catch you later.